0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee The Historic Church of Robert Murray McShane For more sermon content please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk Now we're turning again uh, this evening to the Gospel According to John chapter 1 in which we've been plowing along uh, I think for a couple of months now And this evening we have come to the 14th verse. Let me read from the beginning if you're using a church Bible. I think it's on page 1063. At least it has been for the last two months, so I guess uh, it's not moved since the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The only God who is at the Father's side. Notice the way he's returned to the thought of the first verse. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. A number of weeks ago, uh, we noticed the fact that John's mind, which God uses to give us the Gospel of John, the letters of John, I believe also the book of Revelation, John's mind seems to work in a rather different way from Paul's mind. These two New Testament authors are great illustrations of the fact that the way in which God inspires Scripture or breathes out Scripture is not by nullifying the mindset, the makeup, uh, the, the dispositions, the literary styles, and the way of thinking of the authors of Scripture. It's often seemed to me to be, for example, inconceivable that the prophet Ezekiel could have written the prophecy of Isaiah. God employs different personalities in order to give us the kaleidoscope of inspired Scripture. Paul's mind seems to work in a kind of straight-line logic. John is more the kind of person who looks at a diamond and then turns it round to look at it from a different point of view or to see a different facet of it and see often moves in a kind of circular fashion around his subject. That's actually the structure of the whole book of Revelation. And we've already seen that here in John's gospel, even in the prologue, how he moves round the spiral staircase to give us a a new and fresh and sometimes more profound perspective. And in the first half of this prologue, there is a kind of pattern He lays out the apostolic message about who Jesus Christ is. And then he calls in prophetic witness. In this case, John the Baptist, the great forerunner who points to the Lord Jesus. The one who stands on the shoulders of all Old Testament prophecy. The one whom Jesus says is the greatest of them all because the nearest to him, and says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he comes to what that means for us, for these early Christians, for us as disciples, to all who believed in Christ. He gave the privilege, the right of becoming the children of God. Now it seems he goes back to the beginning again. Here is the Apostolic message about Jesus, the Word who was with God, face to face with God. Now he says that Word became flesh. And then notice he'll move on again to prophetic witness to Christ. He draws in John the Baptist again to testify about Christ in verses 15. And then in verse 16, he moves again to our experience. What does this mean for us? For us, it meant that we have the privilege of becoming the children of God. For us, he says in verse 16, it means the privilege of receiving grace upon grace, grace and truth that comes through Jesus Christ. And last week, we were beginning to think about this apostolic foundation again, perhaps the greatest statement in the whole of the gospel, perhaps in some ways the greatest statement in the whole of the New Testament. The Word became flesh. In a sense, a greater statement than the opening words of the Bible, that God has spoken and brought all things into being. That is an amazing thing. But God has that kind of power, But now this is extraordinary, that the God through whom all things came into being, without him was not anything made that has been made, says John. The God who created all things has apparently entered his creation while he still upholds it. The Word who was face to face with God and was God has entered this world, and yet, according to John, he still resides in the Father's bosom. This is the grand miracle, that the one who created all things became part of the creation he created, that the one who is eternal light has come into the darkness, that the Word through whom all things were spoken into being took to himself that being in the womb of the Virgin Mary. God seems to do His most amazing things in the darkness. It's obvious from Genesis 1 the world was created in the darkness because it is some time before God says, let there be light. And then there is the incarnation itself which takes place in the darkness in the very enclosed, confined darkness of the womb of a teenage girl, as though God always wants to keep prying eyes from seeing the wonders of His work. Not surprising there is darkness at Calvary. Not surprising there is darkness in the tomb out of which Jesus comes in majesty and glory. But here, the greatest miracle of all, greater than the resurrection. Given this, there is a kind of inevitability about the resurrection. But this is is the grand thing around which we cannot get our minds. This is a singularity That is not explicable in terms of other things. Everything else we can say, it is like this, or it is like that. We can use metaphors and analogies from our own experience, but this is explicable only in its own terms. But the Word, through whom all things had come into being, Himself took our flesh. And now John takes us a step further That was last week, this is this week. The Word dwelt among us. The Word dwelt among us. As though he were to say, do not think that the greatness of the miracle resides only in the supernatural nature of his conception and the wonder of his birth, but that he dwelt among us. This too is a singularity beyond our conception. We are too used to sin to grasp what this means. We are too used to the atmosphere of a fallen world to have any real sense of what does it mean for the one who has forever lived before the face of the effulgent light of his father who alone has been able as it were to use the picture we've used before to gaze directly into the eyes of the holy one for him to come and live in in this this kind of world I remember once being in another country and uh, a friend and I went out to do some shopping in a place where we probably should not have gone. Everybody there was different from us, but we had one another for company, and then we, we lost contact with one another. We eventually, half an hour later, found ourselves together again, and my friend said to me, did you feel what I felt? You had that kind of experience? I remember being caught in a fog In the great airport of Seoul on a Saturday morning as it filled up with thousands of travelers. And then I realized that the six Europeans who were in the airport among these thousands of Asians, well, we were all huddled together so that we didn't feel we were completely out of place. There is a sense in which the Word of God, the Son of God, was completely out of place. Inwardly, we have no line by which we can measure that. And so this, this in a sense, is a, is a further explanation of the wonder of the Incarnation, that He not only became flesh, but that He was willing to dwell among us. In a sense, that's a shorthand summary of everything that follows in the gospel. Uh, at your leisure sometime, you could, you could mentally, if, if you don't need to do it by turning over the pages, mentally go through all of the events in John's gospel and feel the, the significance of this part of the overture to the grand symphony of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you turn over a page and he is at a wedding where everything goes wrong. You turn over another page and he is sitting with the, the greatest theologian of Israel of that day, the theologian in Israel, explaining the wonder of the new birth. Uh, you turn over another page and under the, the bright son of the noonday, he is sitting at a historic well speaking to an immoral woman and showing her gray streams of living water. You turn over another page and he is dealing with a man who has been paralyzed for years. You turn over another page and there he is feeding a multitude. You you turn over the pages and and here he is with a man who has been blind from birth and you turn over the pages and here he is again with a, a little family whom he apparently knew well and loved dearly. And the brother in the family has died. And Jesus apparently has deliberately come too late and yet on time. And then he is he is hemmed in by this little group of faithful disciples in in chapters 13 through 17, and he, he opens his heart to them. He speaks in a way that, in a sense, is the great exegesis of John chapter 1, of the interweaving of the relationship of the Father with the Son and the Spirit, with the Son and the Father and he opens his soul to them, and then he prays to them. And and although they'd heard him pray before, they'd never heard him pray like this, Father, glorify your name, glorify your Son. Please, Father, may these my disciples who within hours will see me in my humiliation on the cross pray that they may Be with me where I will be in my glory to see the glory I had with you before the world was made. And then the passion and the resurrection. And it's all a story of him coming and dwelling among us. Now, why does John say this, and and why does he then take us through all these incidents in in the gospel, picking up some incidents that aren't in the other gospels, which he presumably knew well enough? Why, Why does he do this? Well, the reason is very simple, because he knows that Jesus has not changed, and this is the great key. Remember, as the apostles gazed into heaven after Jesus' ascension, you can, you, can, you can see them standing there, just open-mouthed, gazing into heaven, thunderstruck by what has happened, and the angels come to give them the great charge, but also to give them the great comfort. Now they say, this same Jesus will come again. Just as you have seen him go. And those words must have meant everything to them. This Jesus. This same Jesus. Not a different Jesus. Not a Jesus who no longer understands. Not a Jesus who no longer loves. Not a Jesus who is above. Being with the kind of people he is with in John's gospel, but this same Jesus will come again. Remember how Hebrews 13 puts it, Hebrews 13 8? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the point that John has made that the Word became flesh, as I think we may have seen last week, that became is permanent. He will always be like this. If you've never read uh, Hugh Martin's wonderful book about the presence of Christ and the gospel narrative, sometimes published under the title of the abiding presence, you need to read it when you're on holiday sometimes. Because this is one of its great themes. And this is so important for us as Christians, isn't it? I mean, this is simultaneously the highest theology. This is what much of the the letter to the Hebrews is about. About how he's still the same. And how although he's at the right hand of the Father, he's at the right hand of the Father there. The same for us. Still the same sympathetic Jesus. Remember an elder that we had in a church I once served who I think would not have thought of himself as a candidate for Mr. Beautiful, um, who had a a slight speech impediment and something of a simplicity of speech. He was an intelligent man, but something of a simplicity of speech and I would say eight times out of ten in prayer, he would begin the prayer by saying, Lord, he had something of a lisp. Lord, we come to you tonight in the name of the sympathizing Jesus. I sometimes wondered, does that mean so much to him because he cannot say these words without his impediment becoming obvious to all who listen to him. He is the sympathizing Jesus. Actually, he's also the plain speaking Jesus, as John also tells us in the gospel. But he is the same. Yesterday, (coughs) Hebrews means yesterday, that is to say in the days of his ministry. Today, that is to say, the days in which we are living and gloriously forever. He will never, ever change. He will never jettison his humanity. The way he was when he dwelt among us is the way he is committed to being eternally for us. It's just amazing, isn't it? Actually, when you think about it, it's what's so awful about that medieval theology that taught that the Father was so distant and Jesus was the great judge of all the earth that you needed to go to His mother who would be gentle and sympathetic and put in a little word for you. It wasn't just the mariolatry of it, it was the demeaning of the Lord Jesus may not have been intentional, but it was the demeaning of the Lord Jesus. And it's so marvelous for us, isn't it, to know He's just the same. So that, for example, when I I read the Gospels, I don't read them, first of all, asking myself, how like Zacchaeus up the tree am I? You may be very like Zacchaeus up the tree, but that's not a consolation. The big question is, what was Jesus like to Zacchaeus up the tree? Because that's exactly how he is and how he will be to me. He is all-sufficient for all of His people, whatever our needs, because He is all that He appears to be here in the gospel of John and in the other gospels. And that's why John's words are so significant, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But as many of you will know, there's a kind of added layer of significance here, isn't there, from the vocabulary John uses. This is... This dwelling language in verse 14 is tent dwelling language. Some of you go on holiday in tents, don't you? Now, why does he use that tent language? The word became flesh some of the translations used to put it, and tabernacled among us because they, the, the, the translators, and translators are always interpreters of Scripture, the translators saw what John was saying. There's a, there's a nuance here. There's color here. There's, there are dimensions here. And the dimensions have got to do with uh, the way in which Jesus fulfills Scripture. John is thinking back to what happened in the days of Moses when the people lived in tents and God, as it were, moved with them and manifested Himself to them in the tabernacle, in the tent, in the the little holy place, just as when they lived in a city, God came and dwelt among them in the city, but now in a, in a solid building. And what John is saying here, and this is a pattern that runs through his gospel, is that what you see in those events in ancient history were like, like pictures of what God was going to do in Jesus Christ that just as he promised his people he would come and dwell in the midst of them as they moved through the wilderness, now he's come to dwell among them in the person of Jesus himself. And this is why, of course, when you turn over a page in your gospel, one of the first things Jesus does is to cleanse the temple. And then to begin to point to himself as the new temple as the meeting place with God, as the one who is that holy place from which everyone was kept out except the high priest once a year. As it happens, the Day of Atonement described in Leviticus 16, what we just read. But now every day of the year you can come into the holiest place of all and you know what's in there. Uh, The people didn't know. I mean, they knew the furniture that was in there, but they didn't know what the experience was like. But now, the new temple has come. Destroy this temple, says Jesus, and it will be rebuilt in three days. There is no doubt whatsoever that Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of the temple. The temple was, just as it were, an architect's working physical model for a person who would come, and He would dwell among us. And so, He cleanses the old temple. Eventually, He desecrates the old temple. That's the meaning of the curtain incidentally being torn from the top to the bottom. It's right to say that means there's access to God, but the real meaning of that is the temple is being desecrated now, That holy place is no longer the holy place. The holy place where we meet with God is to be found exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I can put it this way, we know what's in the temple. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. And this is such a wonderful thing to know that the Word came and dwelt among us and says John, as a result of this, we have seen his glory. The word dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. That's an astonishing thing to say. Um, think about it in these terms. He's already given a hint to us. Think back to Moses. Think back to Moses. And while you're thinking back to Moses, remember what Moses asked for. Lord, he said, show me, show me your glory. And God said, Moses, I show you my glory and you will be extinguished from the face of the earth. But now he comes to dwell among his people. And they behold his glory. And fascinatingly, that's a, that's another little connection between the verb that John has used here, tabernacling among us, and the way in which God's glory was manifested in the Old Testament. Do you remember how it was manifested? It was manifested in a bright, bright cloud. You remember in the In the days of Moses, that bright cloud so fills the holy place that that they can't be in it. You remember when the temple was built in Solomon's day, exactly the same thing happened. As though to say, you cannot stand and live in the glory of God, it will consume you. But now he's saying that uh, the true tabernacle has come, the true tent of meeting, the true temple has come, and wonder of wonders, in this true temple, you can behold the glory of God in a way that will not consume you. The word that was face to face with God came to be face to face with us in a way that would not consume us. And we beheld his glory. John actually did that, you remember, with uh, Peter and and, uh, his brother on the Mount of Transfiguration. They they caught a glimpse of his glory. But fascinatingly, he doesn't mention that in his gospel. Why? Why? Because there are other aspects of Jesus' glory he wants to focus on. They're not aspects of bright shining. They're aspects of deep suffering. And so when John later on speaks about Jesus being glorified and therefore he and the apostles seeing his glory, he's usually referring to Jesus' death on the cross. And Jesus himself does this. This is where he's going to be glorified, on the cross and, and in his resurrection. That, If we can put it that, this way, this is where you see the glory of God in its clearest, fullest, finest sense. This is where you see the glory of the Lord Jesus in its fullest, finest, saving sense. In the cross, this is why the Apostle Paul will later say, well, actually earlier say, because he wrote Galatians before John wrote his gospel. I will glory in nothing else but the cross, the cross. Now, now why is that? Um, we we do not glory in lethal injections. We do not glory in The hangman's noose. Why do we glory in the cross? And why is it that John says here, listen to this, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, we have seen His glory. This glory is the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is why we glory in the cross and see glory in the cross because there we see the glory of the Son in relation to the Father and a glory that is full of grace and truth. What does that mean? How can we possibly, how can we possibly get to the bottom of this? Well, in a sense, like uh, as we've seen about John's gospel, an, an, an elephant can uh, wash in this, but, but a lamb can also paddle we see the glory of Jesus Christ on the cross because it is there we see how much He loves His Heavenly Father. It is there we see how much He loves His Heavenly Father. It's on the cross that He shows He loves His Heavenly Father so much that He is willing to sense some awful Darkness coming over him in order that together they might fulfill their pledged purpose to save sinners like you and me. It's in the sheer extravagance of his obedience to his Father, out of his love for his Father, And it's there we see the love of the Father for His Son. No, in a sense we don't see it until we see with the eyes of John, with the eyes of faith. Because you remember what John picks up from Jesus in John chapter 10. He says, the reason, the reason the Father loves me is because I lay down my life for the sheep. Isn't that something? And so, you see, what, what we see in the cross is, is glory of the, the love of the Son for His Father and the love of the Father for the Son. In a sense, this is, this is, this is helping us to see in this world in terms of our space-time history. The sheer wonder of what he has been saying in verse 1, that the Word, the Lord Jesus, was face to face with God in mutual love and adoration, like lovers who just want to gaze into one another's eyes endlessly. Because that gaze, as it were, pulls out from them devotion to one another. Where are we going to see that best of all? In the cross. That's where John says the Lord Jesus is, is going to be glorified. Yes, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing to, to have seen the glory of the Lord at the, at the transfiguration. But that didn't save them, did it? They weren't any the wiser. Peter mumbled out another of his foolish statements. This is great. Let's stay here. And the father's voice is to speak to him and say, if you stay here, you will never really see the glory. It's only when you've seen the glory at the cross, you've really seen the glory. It's only when you see the glory in the cross that you've got some line that leads you into the heart of the Father's love for His Son and the Son's love for the Father that makes you, makes you stand back speechlessly and say, oh, oh, what can I say? How can I find words poetic enough to describe this amazing mutual devotion and the way in which this mutual devotion has been, as it were, directed outwards towards me? No wonder John calls himself in this gospel the disciple Jesus loved. Not as I think we've seen before, because he thought he was loved more than any of the other disciples. but because he saw how much he was loved as a disciple. Because he had seen the glory, and the glory was, listen to what he says, it's full of grace and truth. That bright cloud, in a way it was just a bright cloud. In a way it was just a picture. It was God's living pop-up picture book for children who were spiritually underage in terms of the flow of redemptive history. It was a pop-up picture book. It wasn't the real thing. But now we see that glory and truth in that love on the cross of the One who dwelt among us Himself, And we see that that true revelation of the glory of God, not in a cloud but in a person, was full of grace, absolutely full of grace. He is as full of grace as He is, says John, of truth. And we have seen it. Actually, I think we should be glad that John does not record in his gospel the transfiguration lest we think that's where the glory is best seen. Because if that were true, you and I would never see the glory, would we? We'd always be kind of second-class citizens in the kingdom. You know, we'd be running up to Peter uh, as soon as we get into heaven to ask him, what was it like to see the glory? No, that was, just a, that was just a foretaste. What God was doing with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration was saying to, to Peter and James and John, it would be so significant in the early Christian church, I just want to give you a little taste of the real glory. And this is what makes all the difference to the Christian, isn't it? That in Jesus Christ we discover one who is the same yesterday, today and forever and is full of glory that is marked by grace and by truth. My Dear friend, R.C. Sproul, whose name some of you know, had a father who was desperately ill and sick. And when R.C. was a young student, his task, I think probably every day, was to go to his father's chair and his father would put his arms around his neck and R.C. would drag him to the dinner table and after his father passed away rc for many years i think had a, a dream where he saw his father in heaven but his father was still the same sick man troubled him deeply till one night he had a dream and in heaven he saw his father absolutely transformed his father was showing him around and rc told me he i said to my father dad Dad, take me to the place where I can see the glory. And in the dream, his dad said to Marcy, I don't need to take you there. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. But it's not everywhere here yet, is it? So take me to the place where I will see the glory. In the cross of Christ, I glory. That's what he's talking about here. Ma, well, you know, you come to the end of this and you think you're really just at the beginning of it. How can we begin to, to bring out the riches, the depth of what John is saying here, but we know there are some things better felt than told, And this glory is one of them. Are you, are you a Christian who has caught a glimpse of the glory? Because if you have, you actually never can be the same again. And you can never be satisfied until you get the next taste. That's why we come to church, isn't it? To get a weekly taste of glory. We're addicted to glory because we were made for the glory of God. John is saying to us, we find it in Jesus Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we want to pray like Moses and with Moses, show me your glory. And we're amazed that we can say that we know more than Moses did see things more clearly than he did, not better men and women than he was, but you've brought us to a time when we know where the glory is to be seen in Jesus Christ. And we pray that we may this evening have had a taste of it, and that we may long for it more, that we may develop that addiction that will set us free from every other addiction because every other addiction will leave such a foul taste in our mouths by comparison with the taste of glory. And we thank you that we are destined for it. can hardly believe that one day we will see it and see him face to face who sees you face to face. Oh, fill us with these desires, we pray, as we thank you for your word in our Saviour's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org Once again, that website address is solas o r g. Thanks for listening.